I've always respected professional fighters. They're totally addicted to discipline and routine, which I am totally not. They wake up nearly every damn day and train their bodies and minds in order to submit another ridiculously well-trained human being to their will. And more importantly, they get to legally punch and kick people in the face, which is something I think we all wish we could do, especially on our morning commutes to work or when the Jehovah's Witnesses show up and won't get off our lawn until we submit to Jesus. Well, for this episode of Jim's Welt, I had the privilege to speak with one of the best, former UFC middleweight champion of the world, Rich Ace Franklin. Sorry about that, channeling my inner Bruce Buffer right there. Sound more like Freddy Krueger getting colonoscopy, but I felt compelled. Rich and I talk about how in three years, through a lot of hard work and sacrifice, he went from being a full-time teacher to the best mixed martial artist on the planet. We discussed how pissed his dad was after Rich told him he was quitting teaching to chase the dream of being a fighter, whether he gets jealous of fighters today making more money than he did, how to be an effective loser, yes, there is such a thing, PEDs, concussions, and how he dealt with the agony of defeat. Rich is honestly one of the nicest famous people I've ever met, and I'm not just saying that. A lot of famous people are dickheads who act more entitled than Kim Jong-un playing with his toy battleships in his bubble bath on his birthday. Rich is not one of those guys. He's one of the good guys. And a lot of what he says about fighting can be applied to life. So here it is, my talk with Rich Franklin. Dude, you finally called it a career, huh? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, it's, I had that last fight on my contract. I wanted to fulfill my contract. And initially, it's like, yeah, I'm going to do this last fight. I'm going to do this last fight. And then working for one and being overseas all the time and things taking me out of my routine. And slowly, like as time goes on, it's just... It's really not possible. And the, the more time, time that went on, the, the longer I've been out of the cage, obviously. And you just realize, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. And so it was on the cusp of my 41st birthday because, you know, I turned 41 in October. And so at the end of September, I was just like, yeah, this is, it's time to hang up the gloves. Dude, 41, you had a good run. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to begin with the, at the beginning with you. You graduate with a degree of mathematics and education. Was the plan always to be a teacher? Yeah. So here's the problem with my story historically. When, you know, when I'm always fighting and people talk about like, yeah, this guy's a high school math teacher. People always think like I was just teaching one day and then I, all of a sudden I woke up and thought like, oh, I want to be a fighter. And it just it doesn't happen that way. <laughs> right. You can't just do that. But make no mistake about it. I mean the truth of the matter is, man, I was a, I was a third string high school football player. Uh, for, for the high school I went to. Like, I just did not have the God-given talents that I needed to play football. When my senior year was over, I, just, I got into martial arts just for something to do, as like athletically. And I was passionate about it, and I kept doing it in college. And I was the kind of kid that if I wasn't at classes, I came home and I was training. And so by the time I was about to graduate, one of my friends basically dared me to take a fight. Just a, a local show, a little amateur show, nothing big. And I'm like, okay. And then and I did this, and I was bit by the bug, man. And and you could tell right away that I was just – I mean I wasn't as good of a fighter then as I am now obviously, but I was light years ahead of the competition at the time. So one fight led to another led to another. I mean meanwhile, I had just graduated, so I was teaching. And I taught – you know, I taught for uh, for four years full time after that. And it wasn't until my fourth year that I thought like maybe I can actually pursue this as a career. So that year was the last year that I taught, and, and, and I pursued mixed martial arts as a career. So here we are, man. What was the moment where you said to yourself, yeah, I can make a living at this? 
you know, I think even during my fourth year of teaching, when I thought like, maybe I can make a living doing this, I'm not sure I really believed that I could. At the end of my fourth year, like I had to re-up my contract for the following year. And I basically told the principal, like I tried to take a sabbatical because I really thought like, ah, you know, I'll probably end up doing this. And, and if it doesn't work out, then I can go back to teaching. And they're like, we can't grant a sabbatical. For Sorry, fighting. boss. <laughs> yeah. No, that ain't going to work, dude. Yeah. So, you know, it, it forced me to basically resign from my position, which really put me in a position where it's like, I have to make this work. Well, I didn't really. I mean, I could have always gone back to teaching. I was, you know, I had my master's degree and I was certified for another eight years or something. But, you know, the point is, is that the mindset went from, well, this is not a sabbatical. Like, I'm really taking a leap here. And, right. Uh, and so, yeah, it led to a career, man. What did your family say when you were like, hey, guys, listen, I'm going to quit teaching and I'm going to start fighting? I mean, my mom would have been like, what? Are you crazy? Like she would have bugged out because it's from a different generation. You know, they're used to having a job and working here for like 25, 30 years. And on top of it, you have to understand, take yourself back to that time frame in the U.S. My last year t teaching full time was 02. John McCain was saying things like uh, mixed martial arts is the equivalent of human cockfighting. And this sport was not in the, in the state that it was in today. It wasn't widely accepted like it is now. There were still... Tons of state legislatures, athletic commissions that, that had not approved MMA for competition. Um, it was much different. Me telling my family in 2002 that, hey, I'm going to I want to quit my job to pursue this fighting career, because even back then it was like you couldn't really make a living doing this, not a real living. I kind of like was one of the pillars that built mixed martial arts in the United States and which has started to usher in the bigger paydays that you see now. So I've kind of helped bring that stuff in for fighters. I was the only kid in my family. I have three brothers and three sisters and the only kid in my family to have graduated college. So my father just at the time was livid, man. Like he, I, the day I, I think the day I told him he wanted to punch me. <laughs> you had to call up. You were like, yo, is dad there, ma? Okay. I, I'm not coming over. Bro, I told him to his face. Like, oh. I was like and, and the worst part is, is my dad was a man who screwed around in high school and then decided to go back to college like in his mid-30s. Oh, God. So he had a chip. Yeah, he earned his bachelor's degree in, in nursing. Um, and he and I graduated college the same year. Wow. Basically. So when, when I come to him and was like, yeah, look, I, I real basically here's – what I'm saying is I'm going to fight for a living, but what he's hearing is, look, I realize you went back to school and did all this hard work, but it's for the birds, man. Like, I got, I got something better going on here. Education's overrated. Good job, Dad. <laughs> Way to waste your time. Yeah, right. What, yeah. Is, what is everybody going to say in my class? I'm supposed to be your role model. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you get... Do you get jealous seeing what the money that these guys are making today? I mean, guys like Conor McGregor and these guys are pulling in huge paydays. And like you said, you were one of the pillars of the of the sport. Look, I, I don't get jealous at all, man. I'm not a hater like that. Would I love to have had uh, paychecks with an extra decimal place in them? For sure, man. I mean, everybody would. Wouldn't you like to be earning an extra decimal place in your paycheck? I mean, if I asked anybody that question and their answer to that was no, then they're just plain ignorant when it comes to economics. But I would never, like, I would never be, like, jealous or you know, have that mindset, well, that's not fair that this fighter today makes this much money and I only made that much money. What I, what I do, I, I always try to keep things in perspective. And I always tell myself, listen, I made a way better life for myself than I would have made had I been a high school teacher, at least financially. So, no, man, it's a – look, <laughs> the way I look at it is this, man. You see all this stuff coming out about concussions. I get punched in the head for a living. Well, technically, I, I get paid to punch people in the head for a living. But sometimes I get punched in the head, and it's a byproduct of this job. <laughs> and you know, the more money that somebody can make doing that so that in the end is worth it, so to speak, um, nothing is ever worth your health. But it's just like 
I would never want to take money out of somebody else's pocket that's fighting today because I know what they go through, man. I know what prep is like and all that kind of stuff. I've been there. It's so crazy what you guys put your body through. Training, the mental preparation. I give you so much credit because you fought everybody. You fought Anderson Silva twice, Lyoto Machida, Dan Henderson, Vanderlei Silva, Forrest Griffin, Vita Belfort twice, Chuck Liddell, Ken Shamrock. I mean, these are legends, man. You fought the best of the best. Was there ever a, a point when you walked into the cage and you thought to yourself, you know what, I don't match up well against this guy? Or was it always like, I have to think that I'm on equal footing with this guy? Um, no, you don't even put yourself on equal footing with this guy. There are times where when you're breaking down an opponent, you can look at a guy and say, okay, this is going to be a bit more problematic than I thought or a bit more problematic than opponent X that I fought uh, last time or whatever. But make no mistake about it. If you have a champion mindset and you think, oh, I'm on equal footing with this guy, that's a defeatist mentality right there. You never put yourself on equal footing with somebody else because if you're not in of the mindset that you're better than your opponent – you already have a problem before you start. And so every time I fought, it's like, I'm, I'm better than this person. Or at least in my mind, I'm thinking like, I can find a way to beat this person. Maybe I'm not better than, because the, here's the thing about fighting. What you learn when you become an experienced fighter, th this is just a mindset. I don't have to be the greatest fighter in the world. All I have to do is if, if I'm contracted to fight a guy, I have to be better than that guy on that particular night. Because... There'll be times where I'm, I'm prepping for a fight and I come in and I suddenly have a, a bad sparring day and I'm having a bad sparring day against guys in the gym that I should otherwise not really be having that bad of a day with. And suddenly it starts shaking that foundation of, oh, well, you know, I'm not the greatest fighter in the world because look at what's happening to me today. This guy in the gym just beat me. And when you put yourself in that mindset, like, no, I'm prepping for something and I need to be better than him on that particular night, then you realize that all the pieces of the puzzle kind of fall into place of your preparation. And, and it'll lead you to that place of what the goal you have to accomplish rather than worrying about being able to out grapple and out spar and out whatever everybody else every single day of every single round of every practice, which allows you to basically grow as a martial artist. It's so mental. Oh, people say, oh, you know, it's just two guys and they're beating the hell out of each other. Look at what Conor McGregor did to Jose Aldo. I mean, he beat him before he entered the cage. Completely. When you were doing your preparations, did you ever have to see like a therapist? There's pressure. Your name is up on billboards. You got to win, but you also got to produce. You want to have a good fight. You don't want to let everybody down. Your coaches, your training staff, all these people, your family. You know, there's so much pressure on you. I, I wouldn't mm -hmm. be able to handle it. Well, first of all, you made a comment about McGregor and Aldo. I'm of the opinion of myself that technically speaking, I personally believe that Aldo is a better fighter than McGregor. Mm. But McGregor got inside his head and understands how to break that opponent down. So McGregor is a better fighter than Aldo on that given night and probably would repeat the same process over and over again because he now understands how to, how to break that particular opponent down. So um, – and yeah, you know, I did work with people during my career because things the, – the pressure starts adding up. The one thing that I enjoy about being retired at this point in my life is that I can go into the gym and it's back to the beginning. When I got into martial arts, it was all about I just want to become a better martial artist. And so you go in and you, you practice your craft to make yourself better. I, there are days like when I was doing traditional karate, I would go in and I would work on a kata for like four hours. Or I would work on a group of like three or four moves of a kata for four hours just working on perfecting my technique for no other reason than just perfecting my technique. And then suddenly when you fast forward 10 years later, you're going in the gym and it's like you're not trying to make yourself better. You're trying to make yourself 
find a way to beat an opponent. And things become, I got to figure out, I got to figure out a good strategy for this guy, not making myself better at martial arts. I got to worry about this contract. I got to worry about winning this fight because I might get a title shot. I got to worry about winning this fight because it's a title defense. And it's all these external factors that begin to pressure you. So to get your head on track, like, yeah, you, you work with people because what ends up happening is you start focusing on the things that are outside of your circle of control. And you tend to forget in those moments what got you there in the first place. I mean, quite frankly, like what got me to earning a, a spot in the biggest mixed martial arts promotion in the world at the time was the, all the hard work I put in. Yeah, the goal changes really. It's like trying to maintain, trying to maintain instead of trying to get better. Exactly. What fight do you think you learned the most about yourself as a man? Travis Luter fight. Yeah, it's the one, that's, the, the one that I talk about in my TED Talk because um, I did a TED Talk and the title of the TED Talk was uh, How to Be a Loser. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. The the whole premise is that like growing up basically as an athlete, you're taught don't be a sore loser. Like that's pretty much about the only thing you're taught about losing. When you lose a, a competition or something like that, your coaches would say things to you like, ah, we'll get them next time. Or it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, but how you play the game. I heard that countless times every time I lost growing up in a competition. I can't remember if I ever actually heard it when I won a competition. When you win, people don't say those things like, hey guys, uh, I know we won by 45 points, uh, but it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. <laughs> right. Yeah. But no, in that talk, I basically talk about my looter fight and I talk about prepping for that fight basically. Like in getting ready for that opponent, you, you sit down with your coaches, you and the coaching staff, you put together a game plan. The objective is to basically guess what he's going to do, but sometimes you might be wrong. So if he throws you a curveball when you get in the cage, that's typically what will interrupt your game plan and kind of mess things up for you. Well, this is one of those fights where we prepped for an opponent – and we basically had his entire game plan mapped out. He didn't, he didn't throw anything at me that I didn't see coming. But every aspect of the game plan that we prepped for in the cage, in application, I messed it up. And it's one thing, when, like I said, when you prepped and you didn't see this coming, but when every step of this unfolds exactly how you planned it out and you're still failing, that, that can be a little tough to deal with psychologically to bounce back from. And so – I basically got myself in the worst possible situation in this fight where I was mounted. And, and I mean, Travis, this guy's no joke, man. He's a, he's a very accomplished jujitsu fighter. And um, even in camp, my coaches were like, look, he's going to do all this and this and this and this and this. And, you know, his objective is to get here. If you get mounted, just don't let him mount you because if you get there, <laughs> you've, you've lost the fight. And there he is. He's mounting you. Yeah. And so there was a moment in the cage where, because as the champion, the mentality is every time you mess something up, it's like, ah, it's all right. You know, I'll, I'll pick up the ball next time. Like I have the solution to this problem. And then you move to the next phase. It's like, oh, that's all right. Even though I messed up, I still have the solution to this problem. But slowly it starts to chip at you until I finally in that fight mentally broke. I got to a point where I was like, well, I've lost Damn. for a moment. And I was able to snap out of that, come out of the position that he had me in and everything. And then I ended up winning the fight. The point is, is that that was a fight where... It's one thing when you go out and you fight a fight and you're running the pace the whole time and you're chipping away at your opponent and you're the one in control. People always – they'll say, man, I love your fight when you – and it's always like some highlight reel knockout or something like that. But this particular fight was, was the worst winning performance of my career. But it taught me a lot about who I am mentally as, a, as an athlete and as a person. Because if everything goes wrong or even if like you plan and you're not living up to expectations, you're not doing what you're supposed to do, you dug down deep within yourself and you overcame that within exactly. the moment. 
Exactly. So when you won the UFC middleweight championship in 2005 against Evan Tanner, did you think, man, I made it? Or was it, damn, now I have to work twice as hard because everyone's going to be gunning for me? Mm. Could you be in the moment with it? No, because the belt was never a motivating factor for me mm. to to train or any of that kind of stuff. But in my mind, I, I put in the work every single day and I was so driven to getting there that I really forgot to enjoy the journey. I remember going home. Actually, I think I talk about this in the TED Talk too. I remember going home that night uh, after I won the title. and Well, back to my hotel, I should say. And to go from an arena of 15,000 screaming fans to a hotel room of three people, the silence is almost deafening, if, uh, if that even makes sense. You know, I can see, I can understand how certain athletes or rock stars or stuff like that, like they have these depressions because you go from these arenas where the, the energy and the, the people and, and, and you have this feeling of like, they love me, to just sometimes you sitting by yourself in a hotel room or just with your, your couple closest friends or coaches or whatever. And I remember just walking in and I set my belt on the bed and I looked down at it and everybody's like silent looking at me like, okay, what's next? This is not what I thought a champion would feel like. Like I had put all this work into into getting to the destination and really honestly forgot to enjoy the journey of getting there. And and it was an important lesson because that was something that I basically implemented the rest of my careers to make sure that I truly enjoyed the remainder of the journey. Well, I watched the Kung Lee fight, the last one, and I yeah. could see you when you came to the arena, like you were really taking it in. Yeah. I could see sure. it on your face, you know, like you were like looking around and it was just really interesting to see. And I always try to ask that of people, you know, especially people that have had success like you. Were you able to like be in the moment with it? And yours, yours is a sport that is so alpha, you know, it's so primordial, it's so ancient. Two people in a cage fighting for the adoration of a crowd. There is so much pressure. Your ego is totally engaged. When you lose, you must feel like shit because oh. it, it's concentrated happiness. Like you said, you understand how these rock stars have these these ups and downs, you know, because the crowd, it's like, oh my God, there's no drug like it. That's what they say. Yep. There's 20,000 people that are screaming your name, millions of people looking at you. And when you fail, man, especially in a sport like yours, how did you deal with the losses? What seemed like overnight for me that I went from fighting in some like bar in the middle of some redneck town in the Midwest in front of 250 people to fighting in the UFC in front of, I don't know, 20,000. Yeah, exactly. And then millions of people looking at home. Exactly. And so people suddenly, they're like, well, doesn't that make you more nervous? And it never did. What I end up learning about that situation is that really, like, it doesn't matter how many millions of people are watching you. And, and you're right. I do fear failure, but I don't fear, I don't fear failure of failing in front of people anymore. Most people do. With this, like with my fight career, like I don't have the ability to just be like, okay, well, if I could fight this guy not in front of everybody, then I'm okay because if I end up looking stupid, nobody saw it happen. You can't do that. For somebody like me, for the champion's mentality, what you end up finding out is that I am my worst critic. I hold myself to the highest standard that anybody could possibly hold me. So after all the fans are gone, I'm the one who has to come home and look at myself in the mirror and say, you came up short. You failed. You, you, you didn't accomplish the goal that you set out to do and start assessing why that is. You say it's the most primordial sport because it's you and another guy and you're inside a cage. But really, like every time I fought, everybody that surrounded me was in there with me. All my coaches, 
my family, my friends, the community I'm from. Interesting. Even people that look up to you. Like I've had people that have cancer that'll tell me, you know, when I was going through chemotherapy, man, like you were an inspiration to me or soldiers that are overseas that'll tell me these kinds of things. These people anchor on that kind of stuff and they're part of your team. When I train for a fight, all my training partners, they put everything into, into me that they can put into to help me prep for that fight. So when I come out of the cage and I win, they kind of walk around holding their head high like, yeah, you know what? I was Rich's main sparring partner for that fight. That's why he won. Like a little <laughs> piece of that victory is theirs. But when you lose, a piece of that loss is also theirs too. You robbed these, these training partners and these coaches and these family and your community, cancer patients that I talked about and these soldiers abroad and stuff like that. Like all these people that looked up to you, you robbed them of, of the pride and enjoyment of that victory. You took their little piece of the victory away from them. And you have to be the one that looks to people that loves you in the eye and say, guys, I, lo- I came up short. Like I let, I let you down. And it's, that's a tough thing to learn how to deal with. As, as an athlete, truly. What would you do to pull yourself out of it? I remember one time I was listening to, a, um, to an interview uh, by Tony Romo, who was the quarterback of the, right. the Cowboys, which I know you know. but Tony Ono. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, remember the year when, when he was holding the, uh, the, the snap kick for the field goal? Bill Parcells was last year in uh, Dallas. And he botched that kick. He botched the hold, and they missed the field goal, and they didn't end up going to the playoffs that year. Right. And so the following year, he was being interviewed, and they asked him, like, you know, had he gotten over the fact that he screwed that up, basically. What he told the people was, if the worst thing that happens to me in my life is that I messed up some sort of athletic competition, I'm doing okay, you know? And I'm sure the the Dallas fans don't want to hear something like that at the time, but it's so true. I mean, if the worst thing that happens to me in my life is that I I lost my title or I lost a fight or whatever, I'm living right. There's probably somebody in the world right now that just found out that their five-year-old kid has leukemia. I know. At this man. very moment. And, and, and so you really have to, you have to put things in perspective. In my TED Talk, because it's all about, it's about losing, you need to have what I call situational amnesia. You need to be able to effectively like extract information from a loss, like useful information, and, and kind of throw the rest of that stuff away. I went to a bachelor party the other day. This guy, Steve, he started the, he started a fire in the limo. And then he posted the pictures on Facebook, and he tagged me, and it was like – and people were looking at that. You know, My wife is like, why are you hanging out with this guy? And I could reassure her, honey, I'm sorry. I will never hang out with Steve again. But you couldn't do that. You couldn't reassure your family or significant other that will never happen again because the fight game, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, how, how was that not being able to reassure your loved ones, your family, you know, hey, I'm not going to get hurt again because you couldn't do that. Right before I retired, I was joking around with my mom. And, and, and I think this kind of played into uh, me retiring a little bit. But I called my mom one night and my mom had heard a rumor that I was talking about taking a, a final fight. So, I, you know, my mom, I'm on the phone with her one time and I'm like, yeah, I'm like, well, you know, I'm negotiating my last fight and this and that. And. She's my mother. Every time I fought, she's begging me not to fight again. Oh, God, yeah. So my mom, she's like, I just remember the response that she had to this was, we've done our duty. We have, we fought the fights, Rich. Like, we're done. We've finished. Like, you know, I thought we were done with this. And she kept using the word we. And what I realized is that my mother, like, she was just as vested in my career as I was. And I didn't know this, but I was like, like, I was just playing this kind of joke with her and everything. And then I find out the next day that my mom didn't sleep a wink, like not a wink. And, and, and I felt terrible about it. I was like, mom, I was just playing around. Like I'm not, 
negotiating a, uh, a last fight. <laughs> oh, but you like really that. were though. You were like thinking about it, right? You were like, maybe. Well, no, I, I wasn't at a point where I was negotiating it. But when I realized how she reacted, it really did make me be like, you know what? Like, she's right. It's so hard, man, for family yeah. to watch that. I mean, that's crazy. You get pounded. I mean, and you get knocked out. I mean, to see someone that you love getting the crap beat and punched in the face. I mean, yeah. that's hard to take. Yeah. Listen, my brother used to fight a little bit. As an amateur, he may have had he, he had some pro fights as well, but not like at the UFC level or anything. And I and I've coached and cornered many, many a guys in, in the cage before. But let me tell you, the the times that I co like corner my brother and watching my brother get punched in the in the ring in the cage and stuff like that, man. it's difficult, man. It's difficult to watch that stuff. I never let anybody punch my brother growing up. Never would have let anybody, you know, and now suddenly I gotta just sit in the corner and watch this crap happen. And also, you're you're a guy, I would assume, that is very, you're a go-getter. You want to be the one, right? You consider exactly. yourself a type A personality. Like you, you oh yeah, you want to fight? I'll fight you. You know what I mean? Like one of those deals, you know? And I'm, I, I guess it was time to walk away, right? What you realize at, at the age of 40 as an athlete, I mean, I, I wake up and I feel, I feel the career now. I'm in great shape for a 41-year-old guy. But I, I feel what I've done to my body, don't get me wrong. You start realizing that you're not invincible anymore. And so honestly, like that's a big piece of advice I always give to young fighters. It's like, look, man, you, you know what? Even that little – you twist your ankle or something and it's not that big a deal and you can kind of quote unquote walk it off. Like don't. Treat it like it's a major injury. Every injury you ever get, treat it like it's a major injury because on the back end, it will pay dividends for you. That's the difference between having a four-year career or a 14-year career. You just bring up a really good point. You know, the NFL is doing all these things now with veterans. I mean, do you think the UFC should start doing something like that? Do they offer health insurance? I don't even know. How does it work? Do you have any health insurance now from them? Well, let me – no. No, I don't. Let me, um, let me take you and just answer the first question. Okay. I don't think the UFC should offer any kind of um, – any kind of uh, concussion protocol particularly because, you know, a lot of the damage that you do to yourself is the damage that you do in practice. Um, and they don't have any control over that stuff. There is no, like, regulated system. In the NFL, you're, if you're, whether you're playing for the New York Jets or the Cincinnati Bengals or, you know, the Carolina Panthers or whatever team it is, for example, it's pretty much a standardized system. You know, the coaching is going to be different, but the drilling you go through, the amount of abuse you put your body through, the concussion protocol from one team to the next, so on and so forth, it's all the same. It's all standardized and regulated by the NFL. But after I fight a fight and I go back to training camp, you know, if I had a concussion or whatever, and then I decide to go back and just start sparring a week and a half later, the UFC doesn't have any control over that because you're not in a standardized camp. So I don't really know how you could ever put them on the hook for it. Now, with that being said, uh, and things could have changed. I mean, you know, I've been with one championship over in Asia now for the last couple of years. But the way that it was when I left the UFC is that you had – they started implementing insurance for fighters that were in training. So if I injured myself while I was in training or something like that, then it would be covered. But there are deductibles for every incident that you have. And I can't remember – the deductible is something like $1,000 or something like okay, that. Okay, so it's, it's high, yeah. You know, most of what you're going to do to yourself is like – create a cut where you need stitches. Well, if you need stitches and you go into the hospital, that's a six, seven, eight hundred dollar bill and you didn't meet your deductible. And the deductible was per incident. Ooh. So the insurance policy wasn't the greatest insurance policy, but you have to realize in the combative sports that it's the first of its kind. So, you know, at least there was something there. Uh, because like when I tore my shoulder 
I was training and I tore my shoulder training. Th that was all covered under the insurance policy. Uh, and when I first started with the UFC, like that wasn't there. I mean, you had to, I mean, you got to realize, man, like MMA is just such the lifespan of this, this sport is so short. And you think about all the protocols that a sport like the NFL has, like think about how long that sport has been around comparatively speaking. Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, when it come when you talk historically speaking, yeah. I mean, the NFL is what, like, you know, 50, 60 years, you know, whatever Super Bowl it's up to. What is it, Super Bowl 45 now or something? I don't even know, you know? But you got to realize, like, even football was around before that because it wasn't the NFL. You had, you know, your AFL. And, and I mean, still the sport has been around for a long, long time. So it's just had time to evolve. What about performance-enhancing drugs? Oh. Some people say testosterone is good. If there was a way to regulate it and use it, it would be to the benefit of everybody because people could heal faster, that sort of thing. Well, here's the thing. I mean, like, once you open that door, the door is open. And so I'm of the belief that you either you, – you have one of two choices that you can make here. You either, A, completely ban it and have a zero, zero, zero tolerance policy for any kind of performance-enhancing drug. And people focus on things like just steroids, but – I mean, you got to realize there are things like Adderall and Focalin and things that help you focus that are also banned substances because the battlefield for these kinds of things really boils down to how your brain reacts to different stuff. And, and I have a whole talk that I could do about that as well, but that's a, d a deep topic and would take a long time. But, you know, as far as like my feelings about like hormone therapy, let's take, let's take it out of the realm of sports for a moment. I'm, I'm a firm believer in hormone therapy. Basically, like if you can make your hormones mimic what they were when, when they were 25 years old, then you're at your healthiest, which is why, you know, older people nowadays are doing testosterone and it's viewed as not as, you know, it's viewed as a healthy option uh, for alternative living. And I would support something like that. But when, within its application in sports, you can't really do that. I mean, the problem is with the, with the time clock, is, as far as an athlete goes, I'm 41 years old. I'm not the same as I was when I was 25. So as an athlete, you, I shouldn't be able to just try to make myself be 25 in order to keep up. If I can't keep up with this 25-year-old athlete, it's for, it's for a reason. I'm no longer at the top of the heap, and I just need to accept that. And so, because the moment that you allow these testosterone therapies, they're going to be abused. Once you allow the, the drug into the system, you can no longer test for the drug. You can only test for the amounts of the drug. And you have no guarantee of the amount that a fighter is going to use or any athlete for that matter. So, I mean, any fighter would be tempted to do that. It's like, okay, I'm now allowed to use testosterone so I can put this in my body. So rather than taking my testosterone level to what, what I was when I was 25, well, I can just run – you know, extra, and suddenly I'm six times higher than that throughout my entire camp, so I'm recovering faster from workouts and so on and so forth. And then if I happen to get tested, then there's some BS excuse like, oh, I drank some tea, some weird tea or something, or <laughs> yeah. I was I was sick that week and my doctor prescribed extra testosterone, which I've never heard of in my life. And, and suddenly you have all these ways around this, and, and that's what ends up happening. Like you take this testosterone, you run it at such a high level, and then right before the fight, you basically back off so that you're within the acceptable limits. Well, you just cheated yourself into a fight camp even though technically you're not – the exceeding level uh, the day of fight camp. And I, I don't know how you would regulate that. Like, okay, you weigh X amount of weight, 145 pounds. You weigh 145 pounds. But you, your body already has more testosterone in it naturally. So you can only use five times. The other guy can use seven. It becomes like a chemistry war and it, it, I don't know. Yeah. But then again, there's the flip side where it does help you heal faster and that sort of thing. Did you ever think that you ever fought anybody in your career that was on steroids? I think like of the – Six guys I lost to in my career, like five of them have been associated with TRT or, or P, like PEDs or something like that. You know, yeah, I mean, it's, 
it's there. We saw what happened to Anderson towards the end of his career there. Uh, and I'm not saying his career is over, but he, he got caught using um, testosterone. And so, and I'm, and I don't know whether he was using it when when I when we fought or not. Like that that's not the statement that I'm making. But the point is, is that, like I said, these guys they, they've all been associated with it. And as I age as an athlete, like you know, I I'm very in tune with my body. I track my 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 hormone levels, and I knew like what was dropping and what wasn't. But I also understood the negative connotation that came with the association with the hormones and stuff like that. And that's why I never, I never filed for like a therapeutic use exemption when, when they were, when the athletic commissions were allowing it at the time. And they don't anymore, right? It's completely banned. Yeah, it's banned now. So basically you, you're of the mindset of like when you're 35 to 37 years old and the body starts dropping off, you just have to accept it as an athlete now. And I think we'll stop right there. Genville podcast is available on Stitcher, iTunes, and on SoundCloud. If you like it, please share. And I also love to hear your comments as well. So thanks again. Hope you enjoyed it. This is Jim. Peace.